We got a lot to cover tonight, um, and, and particularly because for us as Christians, um, what's that? Last day of spring, Thursday, oh, I'll hit that later. Now you guys know when our last day of gatherings is. So, um, but tonight as um, Christians, this is probably the most important story in King David's life. Now, I know that sounds odd because we know of very famous stories in King David's life. We know of David and Goliath. We've covered David and Goliath already. We know of David and Bathsheba, which we're covering next week, right, and his adultery there. We know um, David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, which we covered last week, and we talked about worship. Many people have heard of David writing the Psalms, and they know of David being anointed as king but one of the things that doesn't get talked about that often, and certainly not a story that the, the world knows at large, is the idea of the Davidic covenant. But for us, it is the most important story in King David's life. And not only for us, but what we see in Scripture is that King David saw it as the most important event in his life. I want to give you guys just a, a little bit of a challenge. Um, it's not like a challenge for tonight or a challenge for anything um, that's due at a certain time, but I want to just challenge you as you read Scripture throughout the course of your life, and, and let's say particularly the next year or two, um, many of us in our time of devotions at some point find ourselves in the Psalms, right? I want to encourage you as you're reading the Psalms over the, the next course of however long to be looking for all the things that we're talking about tonight and how they connect to King David talking about them in the Psalms. Because after we've talked about the Davidic covenant tonight, I think you're going to realize just how often King David actually brought up this very moment in his life in the Psalms. How often he talked about how the Lord had blessed him, had promised that his king would reign, kingdom would reign forever, had promised to um, be with him the, all of his days, had promised to work through him and in his house. Like the amount of times that King David references this moment is way more than we realize. And, and I say that so that you will realize just how important it was to David himself and so that we can understand just what we're diving into tonight. Because what you guys don't know is that um, this message and this topic is, is the, the pinnacle of, of why we are doing a series on King David. Because at the end of the day, I can do message after message on what it's like to follow after King David because he's like Christ. But to fully understand that the reason we have Christ in the first place is because of this moment in King David's life brings a whole new understanding to our salvation and to our faith. And so um, I just want to give you guys a bit of a, a preamble as to what we're getting in tonight with the Davidic covenant. So let me go ahead and tell you how tonight is going to go and this message. I want to just give you this outline so you know what to expect and can see how we're feeling and going through the whole message. So um, first, I'm going to give you um, just some context of the passage that we're in. Then we're going to read the passage together. I'll, I'll just read it. You'll follow along. And then here's what we're going to do. I'm going to explain to you the concept of covenants. I'm going to explain to you as you know, concise as I can the idea of what a covenant is and why we should care about it. And then we're going to dive into this covenant particularly and try to understand it as much as we can and talk about why we should care about it. All right, so that's the general outline so far is we are going to, to read it. We're going to understand covenants. We're going to understand the Davidic covenant. And at the very end, we're going to understand how we respond to the Davidic covenant. It's a lot to cover. If I get into this and I'm like, 
I'm 30 minutes in, I'm never done, I'll just call it quits and we'll come back next week and, and continue it, all right? Like, I wanna make sure we cover this well. So let me give you some context. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you're not there. And the context I have to give you is uh, there's not much context, actually, to this passage. It just, it's not there. If you, if you open up and you're looking in your Bible, um, we covered chapter 6 last week. We talked about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We talked about Michal, his wife, criticizing him for it. We talked about true and passionate worship. And that was the end of chapter 6. And then we're right into chapter 7. So there's not much more context for me to give you in that regards. Um, But if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, it says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... That lets us know that this is just some ambiguous time in the middle of King David's life. It's some time after Jerusalem was established and before all the things happened with Bathsheba and his sons, as we're going to get into, it's some time in a time of peace that this thing happened. And we're going to read what that is. So that's the context. Let's read it. I'm not going to explain too much about the covenant this first time around. I just want you to get an idea of what's going on so we can go back to it. So chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In case you guys don't know, house of cedar means a strong house, a valuable house, a house that'll last in that day. So um, verse eight, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. We're going to pause real quick right there. That language, God reminding what he's done, is typically the start to his covenants. When God is about to make a covenant, he reminds Israel what he's done. As we go through them tonight, you'll see that time and time again, all right? So verse 9, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make This starts the promises, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You guys can start getting an idea of who he's talking about. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
All right, there's some obvious things there, right? There's some things like, yeah, that sounds like Jesus, son uh, of God, like God to him will be a father. There's the throne established forever. There's this part about when he commits iniquity. Don't worry, we'll get to that. But that, you can already start seeing some of the connections. So let's set that aside and now just understand this concept of covenant, right? I'm putting the definition on the screen for you um, just because I think it's easier to, to represent. So here is the definition of a covenant. Um, I can come back to this later if you guys want. I'm just going to read it. An agreement between two parties that specifies requirements for at least one party and includes blessing and curses for obedience or failure. It is typically ratified by swearing an oath. Let's break that down just a little bit. An agreement between two parties, right? There are two people, typically people or people groups involved in this agreement. And at least one of those people or parties, they have things they have to do. There are requirements that they must meet in order for this covenant to exist and for this covenant to continue. In this covenant, there's good things that happen if you follow it, bad things that happen if you don't follow it. And typically, you see some kind of oath or statement of agreement. You guys can sort of imagine this a little bit when we think of like marriage. Marriage is probably one of the only great examples we have now of, of, of a covenant in, in modern day culture, the idea of two people coming together and the agreement to spend their life together, right? To spend their life together, there are certainly um, blessings and curses that come from um, committing to one another and being disobedient to that. And um, they take vows, right? They take vows, they take oaths to one another and to God that they will um, be true to it. So it's about the closest we can get. So that's the idea of a covenant. Here's the things that you need to understand about covenants. Here's the broad sweeping thing, right? And the first one is this, is that God works through covenants. That is the, the first thing we need to understand. Why are we talking about covenants? Because God works through covenants. And the second point is that covenants reveal who God is. So we're going to stay on those two points just for a little bit. God works through covenants and covenants reveal who God is. Now, I told you that these covenants are, are a relationship and agreement between two people. And what you need to understand is that when we look, starting at the, the beginning of all creation, starting at the very beginning of time, God has been working through these covenants, through these relationships. Actually, that's how he interacts with the world and that each stage of history has fallen under these covenants, and they've built on top of each other, right? Now, before I start explaining it, let me explain it to you like this. There's dominoes, right? You guys know dominoes. You can stack them end to end with one another. End to end, that's how you play the game of dominoes, right? Put the numbers next to each other. There's dominoes, but then there's Legos, right? Legos, you stack on top of each other. They overlap, they stack to create one bigger picture. Covenants are like Legos, Okay? They're not like separate things that stand next to each other and God works one way this time and one way this time. They are Legos, meaning that God works this way amongst his people and then he adds more and shows more of himself and then he adds more and shows more of himself and then he adds more and shows more of himself and we understand God greater and greater and we understand how he's working through history more and more and we understand his purpose more and more, all right? So covenants are like Legos, now let's talk about a few of the Legos so we can understand the Davidic covenant. Let's start with like the first one that we see. Well, let's go back to the garden, okay? The garden. 
Adam and Eve. God's there. Group of people, God, two parties. He says something to them. He tells them not to do something, right? He says, do not eat of the fruit. He says, do not eat of the fruit. But what does he say that they can do? Everything else, right? So let's go ahead and understand this relationship that he's entered into with them. He says, you can be with me. You can be in my presence. You can have all that I have created. You can be blessed in this union with me and be with me. And the thing you can't do, the agreement, is that you will not eat of the fruit that I have told you not to eat. That is an agreement. That is a covenant that he's entered into with creation. And then what do they do? They eat of the fruit. Right? We, we said in this definition that there's blessings and there's curses that come from covenants. The blessing was that they were going to get to be with God for all eternity. The curse was that if they ate of it, bad things. Sin enters the world. The world breaks. We understand the fall. We understand Adam and Eve. We understand that now sin has come to us through Adam. And so what we understand in the first, the first Lego, the first uh, layer is that God had this covenant with creation. It was broken. And the curse is something that we are all paying for, right? The curse is something that belongs to all of us at this point. We are a part of this covenant curse of sin. That is us. So that's the first one. Let's go just a little bit further. Next major event after creation, you got Cain and Abel. Go just a little bit further. World's not doing good. Remember that curse that's going on? World's not doing good. God's like, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah's there. The ark, 40 days, lots of rain, water, clears the earth. Ark lands, right? Not the ark of the covenant. Noah's ark, that's what we're talking about. Noah's ark lands. And what does God say? He says, go forth. Be fruitful, multiply. And what does God promise? God promises to never flood the earth again. That's another covenant, guys. You may not fully see that right off the bat, but that's called the Noahic covenant. It's the concept that God entered into agreement again with creation. I will not do this. But what's beautiful is if we're talking about covenants here, what's beautiful is that, you know, the first one, Adam and Eve sort of had to uphold, right? It was their duty to uphold because they, it was their responsibility to do something, and that's where the curses and, and, and blessings came from. The beauty of the Noahic covenant is that God's the one who's doing it. God's the one who's upholding it. And because God is the one who's keeping God accountable, because God is who he is, and we talked about last week, right? He's pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's set apart. Because it's God doing it, he's never going to fail. There's never going to be a curse from it. There's never going to be an issue with it. It will continue forever, and we see that today, right? He set his bow in the clouds. We see that as a sign of his covenant that he will not flood this earth and that he will not destroy us the way that he did previously. That is God upholding his covenant. So now we've, we've got both, right? We've got one layer, which is the creation covenant. We've got another layer, which is the uh, Noahic covenant. And then we keep on going. Let's go down line, go a bit further. We've got the people of God, um, our flourishing. Um, Abraham shows up on the scene. I'm trying to hurry this up, but you'll see why I'm connecting all of them. We've got Abraham showing up on the scene, and then we have this thing called the Abrahamic covenant. Anyone and think of what the, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant would be. It's that God tells Abraham, I will bless the nations through you. 
I will make your descendants as many as the stars. I will bring a light to the nations through you. God entered once again into a covenant with mankind, with Abraham on behalf of God's people. And God said, I will do this. This will happen. So now we've got another layer. You see how they're beginning to build and we see this greater picture of God, right? We've, we see like creation and fall, but then we've got God already like showing us that there is gonna be means, means of salvation and there's also punishment for that sin, but he's not gonna do it that way anymore. And then on top of that, he's like, oh, by the way, I am going to bless this people group. They will become my people. There will be blessing through them to the world. Like it's starting to stack on top one another and we're starting to see more of who God is. That's what I mean when I say the covenants reveal more of God and how God works through the covenants. So let's, let's like fast forward a few hundred years, right? Go through Abraham, go through um, God's people, um, through, you know, Israel, Jacob, Joseph. They end up in Egypt. And then what happens? They end up enslaved in Egypt. Moses comes along. God uses Moses to bring them out of Egypt into the desert before they go into the promised land. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, the Mount Sinai. There's the, the commandments. You guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments. They're given at this point. And God once again says, you will be my people. This is going to happen. But now there's some stipulations. That's the whole point of the law. The law, guys, the Ten Commandments and, and all the, the 600 other laws that are connected to it, like that whole law is one giant covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. And the concept is this. God says, if you do these things, you will be my people. If you do these things, you will be with me. That's the Jewish law. You can, you can read it. Right? Turn to your first five books of your Bible. You can read through the law and understand that concept. But now we've, we've got layer upon layer, right? Fall, curse, Noah saying, the Lord's not going to do it that way. He's going to do it a different way. And we've got Abraham being like, it's going to come through these people. And then we've got Moses. It's like, but I have standards for my people. Do you see how it's starting to build? I have standards for my people. And we head into this covenant. There's probably a few more here and there. That's up for debate, but I'm just hitting the big buckets. So we head into this covenant, the Davidic covenant. So now do you understand why this is a big deal? This is a big deal because when God starts entering into this language and he's like, I'm the God that did this. I'm the God that did this. I'm the God that did this. And I'm going to be doing this. Like when God enters into this language, he's about to reveal more of himself. He's about to reveal his plan for creation. The next step in how he's going to unfold throughout world history, what he plans on doing with it. So big momentous moment already that the Lord would even begin to use the word covenant and that we would see it here. All right, so now let's talk about the Davidic covenant itself and what it actually reveals, right? We said that God reveals himself through covenants. So let's start with the baseline. Let's start with just the things we see immediately in the passage, and then we'll get to the overarching things. So we're going to get back into the verse now. Verses 1 through 7, I put that God is not selfish. 
God is not selfish. That's verses 1 through 7. And that's really what we understand and learn about him. So let's summarize verses 1 through 7. David's like, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. I'm going to build the Ark of the Covenant, like God's dwelling place among his people. Like, I'm going to build it a place that's worthy of it. And at first, Nathan's like, do, like the Lord is with you. Do as you see fit to honor the Lord. And then, Nathan, and then God comes to Nathan and is like, no, 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 no. No, David's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. That's the, that's the turning point right here in the first seven verses. God's like, David's not building me a house of cedar. I'm building him a house that's going to last forever. Go and tell David this thing. And I put it as God is not selfish as this. Like God is for his glory. God is about his glory. God wants us to know his glory for our joy. But one way that he does it is not to just vainly build up his name. It's to do it so we can see his true glory and see it in a way that we savor it and love it and find joy in it. And this is God doing just that. Like the temple's gonna come. God's gonna have David's son build a temple. That's gonna happen. But in this moment, God knows that the greatest way for him to be glorified and for his people to know him and truly see him is for him to make this covenant with David. So it's not that God is selfish and it's not that that's not going to happen. Was that God is glorious and wants us to know it. So that's, that's the first thing we see in those first seven verses. Let's go ahead and move on to the second thing, and that is that God is intimate. God is intimate. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Like the one thing we see is that the people that God is in relationship with, those that belong to him, those that he's working through, he's with them. We've seen that time and time again with David, right? That he's walking with the Lord, that the Lord has chosen him, and and he's saying right now, I have been with you, David. In all things, I have been with you. With you Now, this is the God that knows everything that's going to happen. If we, if we turn to like the next chapter, we're getting into David and Bathsheba. Like, God knows what's going to happen. And yet in this moment, he's still saying, I am with you. I am in relationship with you. I'm not a God that's just a deity. I'm a God that's personal. I'm a God that's intimate. So that's the second thing we see. Third one is that God is a protector, verses 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appoint the judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So I say God is a protector because He's not just saying that he's going to protect David. What does he say he's going to protect? He's going to protect his people, Israel. Guys, that's God's people. We learn in Galatians, like Paul says it, that we have been grafted into Israel. We learn that in Romans too. Like we are a part of Israel. It says that the people of faith are now the sons of Abraham. That's, that's Paul in Galatians saying that we are now a part of that as God's people. And so God is saying that he is going to be a protector of his people. God is saying that there will be a place of rest 
for his people. So all these previous covenants, right, where he's talking about he will bring salvation, right? They will be his people. And now he's saying, like, my people are going to have rest. They're going to have peace. That's also something we learn about God. See how it's stacking one on top of the other. The more that we're learning about God throughout the Old Testament through these covenants. So God is protector. In verses 12 to 17, I just put God is gracious. God is gracious, right? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We'll just stop right there. Like that alone is already more than David deserves because God's not just looking at David's previous life, right? He's looking at David's whole life. God sees David's whole life. He knows exactly what David is going to do. And yet God, knowing that David is going to sin, knowing that he's going to fail multiple times, knowing that he's going to have flaws, still says, I am going to be gracious. I'm going to work through you. I'm going to establish a son that is mine and yours who has a kingdom forever and I will work throughout all of history and you will be blessed and people for generations and generations and thousands of years will know the name of David just like we are right now, right? We are in this room right now and we know the name of David and we are talking of David and we are speaking of him and we're reading about him and we're learning about his life and that is all because God decided to be gracious to him. God decided to spare him, to love him, to work through him. Despite whatever David did, God chose him for his own reasons and worked in him and through him. And that's why we even know who King David is at this point. God could have chosen anyone. He could raise up anybody he saw fit, and yet he chose David. So yeah, God is gracious. So those are like the little things we learn about God in this covenant. Just the just like the little buckets, but let's talk about the big bucket. And I, I just worded it like this. This is uh, the second to last point, but I just put God is just absolutely astounding, and I put all verses, all the verses, all the verses show us exactly who He is, and that's for me. That's the big bucket on this, right? Because you you stood in this room with me, you know, twenty minutes ago, and you worshipped King Jesus. You stood with me and we sung praise to our Lord and Savior, the one that we call King. Have you ever wondered why we call him King Jesus? There's two references to Jesus really as a king that we can like plant that firmly in. The first one that um, is probably going to be obvious as we get further in Revelation with our church is that Jesus is called the King of Kings in Revelation. He has a throne. Clearly he's a king. But do you know where he gets established as king first? Right here. One of the large reasons we worship Jesus as king is because he is descendant and heir to King David's throne. He's in the line of David. You turn to the book of Matthew, the first page you read, connects it from David all the way to Jesus and proves that this covenant, this thing that the Lord is doing right now was fulfilled in Christ. You know, we talked about Parties coming together, that's what covenants are, right? So this would be between God and King David. God and King David, they enter into this covenant together. And one of these beautiful things, it's just like with the Noahic covenant, right? I said like, God did all the work. God said all the things and God did all the work and we just get the blessings because when God says he's gonna do it, it's always gonna happen and the covenant's never gonna be broken and we'll always get that blessing. Like that is this one too. God shows up to King David says, I'm going to do this. Here's the stipulations. There are none because it's me doing it. 
There are going to be no curses because it's not going to fail because I'm the one doing it. And here it is. You are going to have someone come from your throne that will have a kingdom that lasts forever. And we know that to be Jesus. So I said he's absolutely astounding because not only did he do this for David and for us, but he made it happen. He made it happen. Even right now, we can see it. We can understand it. We can savor it. We can understand that Jesus is our king and Lord, just as the people of Israel called David their king, so we call Jesus our king because he is king of his people. We are his kingdom. So that's, it's just, there's so much. There's so much more we could talk about. Now, let's talk. This is a little side tangent, but it's really important. And this is something that we're actually going to talk a little bit more about on our podcast coming up. So there are some things at the end of King David's life that I'm setting aside to have a more deep and intimate conversation on our podcast. So Centered, Committed, Confident, if you want to look it up, has been releasing most weeks since I got my voice back, so that's been on point. Um, but we're going to talk more about the second half of the covenant, where it's talking about, you know, well, what about, you know, verse 14? I will be a, him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then this whole, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. You can sort of see how that sort of relates to the cross, right? But Jesus didn't commit iniquity. So what does that mean? Like that question deserves a lot of topic and a lot of conversation. So I want to encourage you to like, that's going to be released like in two weeks. Um, I'll try to maybe do it even quicker, but um, I want to encourage you to like listen in for that so we can have a real deep conversation on everything that means and near and far fulfillments and all that stuff. All right. Here's the long story short that we'll get into is that David did have a son, Solomon. That throne was established in many ways forever because he built the temple and that temple will always exist because the temple's now in us. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. And he did commit iniquity. You'll see that as well. So that's like a near fulfillment. Um, but then we've also got Jesus, right? It's like this far fulfillment that actually did all these things and he didn't commit iniquity, but iniquity was put upon him. And he, he had the iniquity of all man on him. He had the iniquity of those he was going to save on him. And bore those. And he did get punished for it. So that's the quick response. Here's the last thing. This is how we're going to wrap up. How do you respond to it now? What should you do now that you understand the covenants? I know this was sort of heady, sort of applicational, but what should you do with it? I want to encourage you to do exactly what King David did with it. And this is the last point, is that our response is gratitude. Our response is gratitude. Go ahead and just look at verse 18 with me. You'll see if you have the ESV, it says David's prayer, gratitude. And it says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. He's just saying like, God, you're magnificent. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. And here's verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart. That's where I say that God's the one that carries the covenant. God's the one that chooses it. It's not because of David's earning. It says it right there. Because of God's own heart and his promise. You have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is none God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving 
out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And then he just keeps on going. You can read the rest of that passage. He just keeps on going with a prayer of gratitude to the Lord because of this covenant made. And that's how we're going to end our time tonight is I'm just going to pray a prayer of gratitude. I'm going to give you a minute to pray to God yourself. Just spend a moment with him, thanking him for this thing in your life that you have said yes to and he has opened your eyes to. And then I'll, I'll close this in prayer. Just take a moment and just thank him. Lord, you have brought about all this greatness. You have made us to know it through your son, Jesus. Therefore, you are great, Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears, not only tonight, Lord, but when we received the gospel, saw with our eyes and heard with our ears and believed in our heart, Lord, and who is like your people, Israel? Lord, who, who are you to lift up your people when we so don't deserve it? But Lord, who are you to, to redeem us, to be your people, to make yourself a name through us, Lord, to build your kingdom using us? Lord, we certainly don't deserve it, but we're grateful for it. We're grateful that we get to be a part of this covenant, Lord. And Father, I pray right now that is we have just very quickly gone over a very complex theological idea. Lord, I pray that it just inspires us that we can understand your word only a little bit, Lord, and that there's just such a depth to your word that we will never fully plumb. And I ask, Lord, that you just help us to see these covenants throughout our time together over the next however many years you will sustain this ministry. I pray, Lord, and thank you that we are now a part of the new covenant. And what that means, I ask that we get an opportunity to discuss that in the future as well. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.